Good morning. My name's Nick, and I've been part of this community for about eight years, and it's my honor to get to preach today. Um, but before we get started, a couple things. If you need a Bible, you go ahead and raise your hand or a notes page, and some of the ushers will come and bring you one. And if you're sitting on the aisle, there's a basket under your chair, or there might be, and in that basket there's communication cards and pens. Um, so if you, if you have a prayer request or something you want to communicate, a new address, something like that, you can fill that card out and get it to us later. Good. With that, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your presence this morning. We pray that we would be aware of your spirit in our midst, that we would be able to listen to your voice. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this summer, we're working our way through this series called A Well-Worn Path, and we're taking a look at classic stories from the Old Testament, not really in order to gain some new insight that no one's ever had for the past thousand years, but really to look at these stories, the stories of God and God's people, in the way that people have looked at these stories for ages, and to ask ourselves, how, how do we respond to this? How do we, as people of Uh, Lincoln, California in 2016, how do we respond to these stories? And so last week, it was the story of Moses and the Exodus. Melissa Lester preached, and uh, she she talked to us, she explained that the story of the Exodus is not really just a story about Moses. In fact, Moses is not the hero. God is the hero. We saw this picture of God as a great deliverer. God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, through this epic moment in the Red Sea, and ultimately into the promised land. And God delivers us. She explained that through the person of Jesus, God delivers us from our sin and our death. Um, So we got to see this picture of God as the great deliverer. And today, we're going to jump forward a couple hundred years to the book of Judges, um, chapter 6 and chapter 7. But before we do, I want to give you this this very cursory timeline of the first part of the Old Testament. And the reason I want to do this is because I think the Old Testament spans so many thousand years, and I think sometimes it's easy to see these stories as kind of disjointed because there's different characters every time, and um, the timeline becomes a, little, becomes a little unclear. So this is a, we're skipping a lot of stories here, but this is kind of a, a big picture look at the, the first part of the Old Testament. So you've got the beginning. That's Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, those, the Garden of Eden stories there. You've got Noah and the ark. Uh, generations after that, you've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then you've got, th- those are really the fathers of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And then you've got Israel being slaves in Egypt. And they're slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And then you have the Exodus, this, this, uh, the biggest event, the turning event for the people of Israel, where they're delivered from slavery through the Red Sea. They wander around in the wilderness, and then they end up settling in the Promised Land. And then this period between their settling in the promised land and the kings, so King Saul and King David and King Solomon, they come a little later, this period in between there, it's called the the time of the judges. And so the the people of Israel, they're in the promised land, there's no kings yet, and so they're governed by men and women called judges. That's where we're looking at today. And this time of the judges, it's really marked by, by Israel's wavering obedience to God. They're faithful one day, and then they're unfaithful the next. They take two steps forward and then three steps back. And if you look at this time as a whole, it's a pretty dark time. A lot of dark stories happen for, for Israel during this time. And so we're, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. It's on, uh, I think, if you have a Bible from here, it's page 169. 
Um, we're going to start in Judges chapter 6 with this man named Gideon, a young man named Gideon. Not as famous as Moses that we heard about last week, but lots of you will recognize these stories as we work through them today. Um, what's happening in Judges chapter 6, again, Israel, they've been delivered, they're in the promised land, but now they're being oppressed again. Not by Egypt like they were before, but this time by this group of people called the Midianites. And so if you look at this map, I don't know if you, you can't see it very well up there, but you've got the Mediterranean Sea up there, and just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, that's where Israel is. Um, and then you've got the Sinai Peninsula down below, and on this map where it says Arabia, that's the, the area where the Midianites were from. And it was this nomadic group of people, and there were a lot of them. And in Judges 6, they were basically beating up on the, the people of Israel. And here's what they would do. It was harvest time for Israel. They spent all year kind of planting these crops and, and getting ready to harvest. And then when it was harvest time, Midian would storm in and steal their crops. And while they were at it, they would take their herds. And if there were anything that they couldn't carry with them, they would destroy it. So Israel, at harvest time, was left just decimated. And then the next year, as Israel started to, to rebuild and recover and feel like they got their feet under them again, Midian would come in and do it again and again and again. And it went on for seven years. And so the people of Israel, they're, they're so terrified of the Midianites that they end up leaving, lots of them end up leaving their homes and living in caves in the mountains, hiding, right? And that's where we first meet Gideon. Um, so here, we're going to start with chapter 11, six chap uh, verse, yeah, chapter 6, verse 11. It says now, oh wait, Midian, he's a young man, he's from the Israelite tribe of Manasseh. And so uh, here's where we meet him. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So he's got this little bit of wheat, and he's beating it out. This is what you would do when you're trying to separate the, the chaff, the stuff they're going to throw away, from the wheat. And typically, you would do this outside in a wide open area so that the wind would come through and blow away the chaff. And you would typically do it with some kind of work animal, like an ox or a donkey, so that they could walk over the, the wheat and it would, it would separate it for you. But Gideon, instead of doing it outside in this wide open area, he's doing it in this wine press which at this time was this kind of cut out area in the side of a mountain where someone could get down in it and there was room for a couple, a couple people to get in it, but you couldn't get an animal in there. And it was kind of this small area. So Gideon, because he has so little wheat and because he's terrified of the Midianites, he's doing this work inside a wine press. Here's what happens. Uh, verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Other translations say, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I'm trying to imagine what this feels like to Gideon. Gideon, remember, Gideon, he's hiding in a wine press, going about his work in secret, terrified of the Midianites. And an angel shows up and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. I can imagine Gideon kind of doing one of these like, mighty warrior? You talking to me? Right? I'm all alone here. I don't see a mighty warrior. And as Gideon responds, we get a look into how Gideon's feeling at this point. And we get a look at the, the, uh, the dire circumstance that Israel finds himself in. Here's what he says, verse 13. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us, out, bring us up out of Egypt? 
But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's as if Gideon looks around as he's hiding in a wine press, as he's threshing a little bit of wheat so he doesn't starve in secret, as he's scared of the Midianites. And, he's, and he hears these words from the angel and he kind of snaps. Oh, the Lord is with us? Wait, don't you see all this trouble and distress, the oppression from the Midianites? The Lord is with us, you say? I'm in a wine press. The Lord is with us? People are living in caves. We don't have enough food to eat. The Lord is with us. Our, our fathers told stories about the, the miracles of God, about the faithfulness of God, but where are those miracles now? The Lord is with us, you say? Well, if this is what it's like to have the Lord with us, then I don't know if I want it. And this outcry of Gideon, I, I think, as I read it, I feel like there's something familiar about it. His outcry, it's the outcry of of the unemployed. It's the outcry of, of the broken and the lonely and the sick. It's the outcry of those who've been rejected again and again and again. It's the outcry of me and you as we face trouble over and over. We find ourselves desperate for relief and unable to see God anywhere. The Lord is with me. Where's the Lord in the unanswered job applications? Where's the Lord in all the rejection letters? Where's the Lord in the stack of bills that aren't going to pay themselves? Where's the Lord in the miscarriages? Where's the Lord in the negative pregnancy test after negative pregnancy test? Where's the Lord in the broken relationship that only seems to get more broken every time I touch it? People tell stories about the miracles of God. People tell, tell stories about God's faithfulness, but I don't see it. Where are those miracles now? Where is that faithfulness now? And then, verse 14, the Lord turned to Gideon. The authors of the Bible do this sometimes. In verse 12, it's an angel of the Lord. And then in verse 14, it's the Lord. The lines between these two, between an angel and the Lord, they become a little unclear. But the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Do you notice what happened there? Do you notice the response? The Lord's response to Gideon, uh, the Lord doesn't justify anything. The Lord isn't defensive at all. The Lord actually doesn't answer any of Gideon's questions. You know, in Gideon's rant, he said, Why has all this happened to us? And where's the Lord in the midst of all these circumstances? And the Lord's response is simple, and it's really cool. The Lord turned to him. He turned to him. I can imagine them locking eyes, standing face to face. Can you picture that? See if you can get that image in your head. Gideon's finished his rant, and he's quiet, and he's standing face to face with God. And God simply says, go in this strength that you have and save Israel from the hand of Midian. It's as if the Lord is saying, look at me. I say this to my kids when I want to have their full attention or when I want them to know that they have my full attention. The Lord says, look at me, Gideon. I see that you're angry. I can use that. I see that you're disappointed. I can use that. I see that you feel downcast and rejected 
and broken, and I can use that. And I also see that you're strong, you mighty warrior. And, and I'll use that too, so go. Go in this strength that you have and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Gideon was asking, where is God? And God is saying, I'm right here, right? I'm standing right in front of you and I'm sending you, I'm commissioning you, so go. You see, the, the problem in Judges chapter 6, the problem is that the people of Israel are being terrorized by the Midianites and that Gideon doesn't see God in the midst of this mess. And then God shows up and stands face to face with Gideon. Gideon is desperate for this. He needs it. And God meets him right where he is and reminds him that he's not alone and sends him to save Israel. But wait, the story gets way better, right? Because Gideon responds to this. He responds to this call of God and he, and he sends out a word to all of Israel and he says, listen, we're getting ready for battle. Who's with me? And he gathers actually 32,000 men ready to go into battle. Now these guys are from Israel. Remember, they've been beaten up on for the last seven years and they're ticked, right? And they're ready to fight. And there's 32,000 of them, which sounds like a lot until we find out that Midian has also been gathering an army and they've enlisted some help from some other nations in the east. And Gideon, or and the Midianites, actually they have 135,000 men ready for battle. So a little bit of math here, right? Ryan Byler helped me with this. 135,000, we get, it's, it's going to be about four against one, right? Just about four against one. But, but Israel's got some fight in them, right? They're angry. And, and so we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter seven, and Israel's 32,000 men are up on Mount Gilead. They're camped out on Mount Gilead. And the Midianite army and all of their 135,000 are down in the valley, in the valley of Herod. And this is where uh, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, this is what we find. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. I can imagine them standing up on this mountain and they're all excited and they're fired up and ready to fight and they look down in the valley and they see 135,000 and they're thinking, that looks like a big group. And I can imagine these conversations happening like, are you sure we're going to do this? And all of a sudden the guy's next to him and he's thinking like, I don't know if I want to do this. Are you sure you want to do this? And so when, when they get it out, Gideon says, if you're afraid, go home, right? And most of them do. So, you remember Gideon's problem? Gideon didn't see God in the midst of the, the mess. Remember his rant? He says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? And where are God's wonders? I don't see them. So what's God doing? God's making sure that Gideon and the people of Israel know that it's by God's power that they will be saved, not their own. God wants to make sure that Gideon doesn't miss it this time. You see, God turned to Gideon, and in turning to Gideon, God said, I'm with you, and now God wants to prove it. And so God takes the army from 32,000 down to 10,000. Oops. Right? That's one against 13 and a half. So 
So if this is going to happen, God's going to have to be involved. Yeah. But God's not done. Right? This is verse 4, chapter 7. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the, Lord to- there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. This is a super weird way to separate people, right? We'll just acknowledge that. God says, go down to the river and everybody's going to get a drink. And then you're going to separate people who like scoop the water up and lap it from their hands. Put those people over here. And then the people that, the men that kneel all the way down and drink from the river that way, put them over there. And so Gideon's got 300 men over here, and he's got 9,700 men over here, right? And maybe Gideon's probably thinking like, all right, we're going to go with 9,700, I can do this. But God says this, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. 300 against 135,000. That's one against 450. There's no chance. None. Right? One against 450. Unless, unless you are John Rambo, there is no chance right? I mentioned to my wife this week, um, we were talking about this story, and I mentioned John Rambo, like you do when you talk about Gideon. And you know what she said to me? Who is John Rambo, right? Yeah. So we've got, we've got some work to do. But John Rambo, this guy, right? He's the hero of the Rambo saga. He's the guy that does go one against entire armies, and he ends up winning. But this, it's a movie, right? John Rambo is a movie. These are actually 300 real-life Israelites, and they're going up against actually 135,000 of the enemy. They don't stand a chance. They're toast, right? But here's what happens. Gideon takes the, the 300, and he splits them into three groups. And then he gives each group, or each, not each group, but each each man, a trumpet, and a torch, and a clay jar. And I'm sure these guys are thinking like, thank you, Gideon, great, right? And he has them spread out around the camp of the Midianites. It's in the middle of the night, right? And here's where we end up with verse 20, right? Here's the epic battle starting with verse 20. The three companies blew the trumpets and smash the jars. They do this as Gideon gives the word, right? They blow the trumpets and they smash the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Oops. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, right? So there's 300, 
they're spread out around the camp. And, and Gideon gives the word. And they, they smash the jars. And they blow the trumpets. Someone found the effects in PowerPoint this week, yes. And they blow the trumpets. And what happens is the, the people of Israel, or the people of Midian, the Midianites are so scared, right? They wake up in the middle of the night and they're confused and there's these jars smashing and these trumpets blowing and people are shouting and they wake up and they, they're ready to fight like they've been trained to. But God confuses them and they end up fighting against themselves. And 120,000 of them die. So we're down to 15,000. And then those 15,000, they take off, right? And then Gideon and his army of 300, they follow him. I was kind of excited about that, right? And they chase him down, and they, they end up conquering him. And then we're told that the, the land was at peace. 300 against 135,000, one against 450. They had no chance, none. And yet in this, in this element, this is where God's power prevails. Gideon had to be fully reliant on God. And for him, this meant having his army reduced to a number that was so small that his chances were laughable. Have you ever got to that point? The, the point where you have to say, this is utterly impossible. I just can't do it. There is no way I can do it. I've been thinking about this recently, and, and I, I think that we don't get to that point enough. I think that we often have this mindset of, like, we're Americans, and we're just going to, you know, dig in our heels, and we're going to grit our teeth, and, and we're just going to wake up earlier, or we're going to work harder or something. And we don't get to the point where we say, I give up. I can't do it. But it's when we get to that point, when we acknowledge that we can't do it, that God shows up and says, I know. I know you can't, and you don't have to, and I'm right here with you, and I'm working to deliver you again and again, and I'm working to restore all things. This is where the sermon gets really hard, though, because, because I don't want to trivialize it. I don't want to say, oh, your problems, you know, they might seem big, but God's going to take your 300 and God's going to conquer the 135,000. I don't want to I don't want to trivialize it like that. And I don't want to over-spiritualize it and make it into some allegory where the 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 torches are like the word of God and the trumpets are like the church. I don't even know what that would mean. But I I don't want to do that with it either, right? The reality is this part of the story, Gideon's part of the story ends with this massive miracle. But not all parts of the story do. Your part of the story might. You might have some miracles like this in, in your part of the story, but you also might not. So what do we do? How do we, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to, to what we see in this text? I want to offer a, a couple thoughts, because I think one of the things we can do with a text like this is we can say, what do we see that's true about God? And how do we hold on to those things that are true about God and let those shape us? And so I want to point out a couple things. First, we see that God is bigger and more powerful than anything you will ever face. There's nothing you will encounter that will make God say, well, shoot, I didn't see that one coming. 
and I have no idea what to do about this, right? God is bigger and more powerful than anything you will ever face next. Oh, that first one, that should give us, that should give us comfort, right? We should be comforted by that. Next, just like God turned to face Gideon, God turns to us in the person of Jesus. We have this encounter, this relationship, this intimacy with the creator of the universe in the person of Jesus. God turns to us and sees us and knows us and sometimes calls us into really difficult things. But when we're called into those things, we don't go alone because God is with us. God has turned to us and is with us. And this should give us comfort and hope. And last, God is the great deliverer. We saw this last week with the Exodus. God delivered the people of Israel through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. We see it this week with the Midianites. It's God, only by God's power that the, the people can be delivered. And as Melissa pointed out, she reminded us it's only God who can deliver us from sin and death. God is the one who has the power to deliver, and that should cause us to hold on to God like nothing else. God is the one who has the power to restore all things. May we not forget this. May we hold on to these things all that God is powerful, that God is with us, God turns to us, and that God can deliver. And may this shape us. May it shape the way we interact with our families and our neighbors and our coworkers. May it shape the way we spend our time and our money. May it shape the way... May it shape us when we find ourselves face to face with God. May we cry out simply and honestly, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm desperate for you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your presence. We're thankful that you are so big and so powerful. God, help us see that. Help us know that, believe it, and feel it. May we know that we are utterly reliant on you, that we are desperate for you. And may that shape us, God. Pray these things in the name of your Son who loved us and died for us. Amen. It's the part of our service today where we get to um, share peace with one another. So.